So we've uh, been exploring covenant to covenant in the Old Testament. We've been looking into the details of what we can expect from the new covenant based on what we were looking at the prophets, prophets, prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Ezekiel. But now today we have finally arrived at the New Testament. It has been a wonderful and a joyful thing to reflect so deeply on the plans of God for salvation, his eternal love that he has for his people. And now we're going to arrive at the person who ties it all together for us. And this person is Jesus of Nazareth. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and placed in the womb of a young virgin named Mary. And hidden within her body was the hope of the entire world, the one who would fulfill all the promises of the covenant. Have a listen to how Zechariah, who was the father of John the Baptist, uh, have a listen to how he prophesied about the work that God was doing. Have a listen to the words, uh, the words for covenants as it's going on. Luke 1, 68-75 Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. You see, the prophet Zechariah, he's realized that God has indeed raised up this promised king from David's line to bless and redeem the people of Israel and fulfill the covenant that he had made with Abraham. The father had laid all the groundwork for the arrival of his son, Jesus, shown to us in pictures and in parts. Um, Now we're going to see the salvation that God was going to work in him. And now God was going to do something new through him. Uh, The holy covenant from Adam to David was now fulfilled in Christ. The new covenant had arrived. Uh, Hebrews 8.13 says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. You could think of the Mosaic Covenant as a kind of scaffolding around the house that God is building. It was a necessary covenant to communicate truths about redemption and sin and sacrifice. It was necessary to lay out the essential details that God, uh, in order to give God the legal case he needed to save his people utterly and entirely from the grips of the devil. But now that the new covenant has come, that is, that this building has been built, the scaffolding around it is unnecessary. It needs to come down. But the problem is, most of the Jews had come to love that scaffolding so much. They couldn't see the building that God was making. It'd be like a man who has gone away for war and he writes love letters to his wife, only to find out that when he gets back after suffering so much to protect her in battle, she rather read his letters than speak to him. You see, the letters aren't the reality. The husband's the reality. Just in the same way, the scaffolding around the building is not the reality of the building. The house is the reality. These things need to come down. It doesn't mean that you get rid of the love letters, but how much greater is the reality? Now that Christ has come, the reality is here. He has shed his blood to redeem and ransom his bride. We ought not to return to the old ways that were necessary for a time, but we ought to now press deep into the reality we find in Christ. We need to glory in our new covenant reality. Found in the bride of Christ in heavenly Jerusalem, in our, in, our, uh, in our citizenship within heavenly Mount Zion, how we belong now to the church of God, which has given birth to us as sons and daughters. And so today, as we're going through our passages today, we're going to be looking at the physical and spiritual realities of the new covenant. We're going to look at what an orderly, well-run covenant community ought to look like and how it can be used by God in our physical bodies to affect deep and lasting spiritual change in this world. 
And so my first point that I want to bring you through is entrance to the covenant. Now we've seen in the old covenant how God had given Israel three signs to obey. He gave them circumcision, Passover, and the Sabbath. Now circumcision, you can consider as sort of an initiatory sign. It was a claim that God made on every male baby connected to him by covenant. And it distinguished that baby from the rest of the world. This baby belonged to God. The Passover was a remembrance or a commemoration of the salvation that God had wrought in the Exodus and how he had taken them out of slavery in Egypt and made them a nation. And also he gave to them the Sabbath. And this was a day of rest, a day holy unto the Lord. It was a day upon which the people of God would gather as a holy convocation and to be taught the law by the Levitical priesthood. Now, what's interesting about all these three signs is that they are covenantal signs. Circumcision for males allowed one entrance into the covenant life of Israel. They were born into the covenant, but the sign had to be placed into them before they participated in the covenant life of their nation. It permitted them access to things like the sacrificial system, to the synagogue, and to the Passover. A male could not participate in the Passover unless they had been circumcised. And yet, what is interesting is, as we come to the blessing of the Sabbath, the sign of the Sabbath, that Sabbath was extended to all people of the land, and this included both Jew and the sojourner, the non-Jew. It included everyone. The foreigner and the slave, everyone was given a day off to worship the Lord and to be refreshed and to praise their mighty God. But these signs were not merely physical signs. They had a profound spiritual reality behind them. Circumcision was not merely a sign of covenantal union with the God of Israel, but a sign that reminded the Israelites that God required them to be a certain kind of people, a circumcised people. As Moses said in Deuteronomy 10, 16, he says, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. And while men had the sign in their flesh, the spiritual reality of circumcision was required of all. It didn't matter if you were a man or a woman. Everyone's heart had to be soft and receptive to the commands of God. Everyone had to have a circumcised heart. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 2.29, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. In other words, the reality of circumcision, the fulfillment of circumcision, is not by the letter. It's not, it doesn't come about by obedience. It doesn't come about by law-keeping. It comes about, he says here, by the Spirit. By Holy Spirit transformation. True circumcision is not done with hands, he says. It is done by the Spirit of Christ. As Paul says in Galatians 3.14, So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. And what is the blessing here in Galatians 3.14? What's the blessing of Abraham? It's the promised Holy Spirit received by faith. This happens at the moment when we are justified by faith, when we are made right with God and our whole, the Holy Spirit brings about a transformation that causes us to become new creations. How does this heart circumcision happen? Well, Paul tells us in Colossians 2, 11 and 12, he says, in him, also, you were also, excuse me, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And what we see here is utterly profound. The spiritual realities of circumcision are fulfilled in our baptism to Christ. 
There is a baptism that completes this. And that is our baptism into Christ. It's not our baptism of water. That's not what's going on here. It's a spiritual reality. It's our baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's the moment when we, would, we died in another. We were buried in another and we were raised with another by the powerful working of God. We were buried in Christ, raised in Christ. We died in Christ. And what does this mean? Well, it means that both baptism and circumcision, they both point to the same spiritual reality. The Holy Spirit transformation that is accomplished because of the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. When you are transformed by the Holy Spirit, Paul can at one minute call it the circumcision of Christ and also call it the baptism of Christ because they are pointing to the same physical reality. Circumcision is fulfilled in the death, burial and resurrection of Christ. It points forward to Christ, our need to be redeemed. But baptism is a sign that points back to the death, burial and resurrection of Christ. In Romans 6, 3 to 4, Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is how our baptism replaced the sign of circumcision as the entrance to the covenant community. As Paul says in Galatians 3.27, he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Throughout the book of Acts, what we see is that when someone becomes a Christian and they put their faith in Jesus Christ, we see that they are immediately baptized. They are welcomed into the Christian community. It's not merely a sign of their conversion. It was a sign of them putting on Christ. There's a physical welcoming into the covenant. But we must always remember that this points to a spiritual reality, the fact that God is the one who saves us. Water baptism points to that spiritual reality but it doesn't accomplish it. Just as a man might be circumcised in his flesh, but he may not have a circumcised heart. These signs are like a signpost, pointing to a greater reality. A failure to arrive at the destination of the signs are not the fault of the sign, but the person receiving them. Just as with circumcision, the unbelief or rebellion of a Jewish man doesn't distort the sign of circumcision. Instead, the sign actually becomes a judgment against him. He was a member of God's people, and yet, despite the fact he was circumcised, he did not possess a circumcised heart. He did not be a circumcised person. He was a rebellious and a stubborn person in his heart towards God. He was uncircumcised in heart towards God. And so it is with the disobedient Christian who is baptized. There's someone who has been washed with water and yet inside they're still filthy. Inside there is still sin. Inside they are unwashed, just like the unwashed non-believer. In the book of Acts, there are examples of men who believe in Christ, who receive the sign of baptism and yet prove to be unfaithful to the covenant. For instance, in Acts 8, there's this guy named Simon the sorcerer. And he believes in Jesus and he is baptized. In Acts 8.13, it says, Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Yet instead of truly coming to Jesus to be saved, Simon tries to get the Holy Spirit off Peter another way. He wants to buy the Holy Spirit. He wants to buy this transformation. He wants to buy the reality. Listen to how Peter responds. Acts 8, 18 to 21. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, For your heart is not right before God. 
What does Peter say here that Simon's problem? He tells us his heart is not right before God. Simon needed a new heart. He needed to repent. See, God is the one who places the sign of the covenant on us and he commands us to believe in him. Just like circumcision, the sign of baptism places us in the church community and it calls us to confess the truth of our baptism and the truth of the gospel. It calls us to believe in the one who gives the Holy Spirit freely to all who ask. And that is the job of the church. Jesus commands us in Matthew 28, 19 to 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. These are our marching orders to go and take the land, to go and baptize the nations, to call them to observe all of Christ's commandments. We go into these nations not to circumcise them, but to baptize them, to introduce them to the new covenant, to call them to obedience to Christ, and to exhort them to believe and trust in Jesus so that they may receive the Holy Spirit. And this is why I believe all the things that I've said just just now in the entrance to the covenant, that's why I believe that baptism is rightly extended to infants. Just as God extended the covenant sign of circumcision to the infants of Israel, so also does God extend this sign to those privileged enough to be born into this new Israel, the church. In the old covenant, if you were a foreigner, if you were a non-believer in the God of Israel, if you wanted to come into the covenant promises, it happens the same way as the new covenant. You have to convert first. You have to have faith. And then once you have faith, you receive the sign of the covenant, circumcision. And this permitted you access into the covenant life of Israel. This placed you in the covenant of Abraham. In fact, the exact same way that Abraham himself came into covenant with God through faith. And this is exactly what we see in the first century church. As a new covenant is being made, it must be entered into by faith. Just as Israel believed in Mount Sinai and entered into covenant with God. Any new covenant is made with outsiders by faith. But what happens to those who are born into the covenant? Think about it this way. Think about two missionaries. One is a Baptist and the other is a Presbyterian. In the first generation of believers, they will both practice baptism in the exact same way. Baptizing converts on a profession of faith. The difference comes in the next few years when the children begin to be born to these new believers. In one community, in the Baptist community, there'll be a bunch of unbaptized kids. And in the other community, there'll be a bunch of baptized kids. And so what view is true? Is the only way to enter into the covenant as an outsider through faith? Can you only enter the covenant as Abraham, but you're not allowed to enter the covenant like Isaac. Has God made his covenant with just individuals or with households? The Apostle Paul, he's confronted, there's this reality within the church. There's a bunch of children now within the church. uh, And many of these children are born to converts. And some of these converts are married to non-believers. And here's how he viewed these children in 1 Corinthians 7.14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. And here he uses covenantal language. He describes these children as not being unclean or outsiders to the covenant, but as being holy. Isn't that interesting? I mean, every time that this word is used, this word holy, 
to be used towards a person is almost always translated as saint. And that was the name that the early church gave to the new covenant community of God. And what Paul is saying is that our children are not unclean. Even when they are born with only one believing parent, instead they are indeed members of the church. They have a covenantal claim just as Isaac did to Abraham. And this makes sense of the new covenant language in the Old Testament. And I've tried to argue in this series that our children are included in the covenant by virtue of being born into a believing household. Something that God has done. God has put place that child there and God has claimed that child. We do not make them a covenant member. They already are. They are introduced into the covenant community and they are exhorted to believe in Christ and to receive the promised Holy Spirit. In fact, this is true of everyone. We don't know anyone who has been truly converted. No one has uh, uh, regeneration goggles that we can put onto our eyes and we can see the hearts of men. We cannot know when we baptize someone whether or not they are truly regenerate. We cannot baptize people upon regeneration. We often baptize people who fall away from the faith and then come back again. But this doesn't mean we were wrong for baptizing them. We extend the covenant sign as God requires us. But we remember that salvation belongs to the Lord. Covenant membership does not equal salvation. Leads me to my second point, blessings of the covenant. See, what baptism does, just as circumcision once did, is give everyone access to full covenant membership along with us. And this includes our children. They have access through their baptism to all the blessings of the new covenant, which are designed to grow up a person into maturity in Christ. And these blessings are at first physical, but through the Holy Spirit are both physical and spiritual. The church is a visible and a physical reality. And so the church dispenses physical realities. The preaching of the gospel, let's face it, it's a physical reality. It requires sound waves. You have to have vocal cords. Or in the case of maybe a gospel tract or a book, it requires letters, it requires paper. When we dispense the Lord's Supper, which we saw corresponds with Passover, it's a physical reality. It's real bread. It's real wine. You can smell it. You can feel it. You can taste it. When we sing songs, we use physical words from a physical language that we understand, delivered in a different way than speaking. In all of our fellowship, with our warm words and our warm handshakes and all the food and the hospitality and the laughter and the fun and all of our prayers as we pray to God, they're physical, we're speaking. These things correlate very closely to the three signs of the Old Covenant. You see, we, this Lord's Supper is the ongoing renewal of covenant which refreshes and reminds us of the work of Christ on the cross. There we take physical elements that by the Spirit convey spiritual strength and nourishment, but the Spirit has to do that work. The Lord's Day correlates with Sabbath worship of Israel. Although the Lord's Day is no longer a sign of the covenant, it is the day that Christ rose again from the dead. The next Sunday, on the Lord's Day, Christ showed up again to His disciples as the risen Savior, where they held the first worship service of Christ and received the Holy Spirit on the Lord's Day. He began a practice of the church meeting on that Sunday to hold a holy convocation. In other words, a gathering of the saints. The early church called it the eighth day, which is, honestly, a very interesting way to say the first day of the week. I mean, why did they call it the eighth day? It was to highlight that Sunday was the beginning of a new week, a new creation, a new reality. The eighth day, another week. The book of Hebrews highlights the importance of meeting together every week. It says in Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works 
not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And while all these things are physical, they're embodied, you can touch them, it would be foolish to think that all of the visible ministry of the church, within it there is no spiritual realities behind them. The fellowship of the saints is more than a mere physical reality. It's a gathering of washed, cleansed and redeemed people who are day by day being morphed into the image of God. When the gospel is preached, it is more than mere words from a preacher, but a message that is empowered and carried by the Holy Spirit. Here is how the Apostle Paul describes his ministry in 2 Corinthians 3.6. He says that God has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. See, there are amazing blessings which fall upon us as we gather for Lord's Day worship, as we hear the Word of God proclaimed, we sing His praises, we offer up our prayers with thanksgiving and intercession, we confess our sins, we come to the fellowship of the Lord's table. And these blessings have such an important function, discipling us. It equips us, shapes us, and transforms us as the Holy Spirit, as means of grace, turns these physical blessings into true spiritual blessings for us that go down deep, deep into our souls. It's not of the letter. It's of the Spirit. And listen to how Paul describes us uh, participating in Christ at the Lord's, uh, the Lord's table. And, and just note that as he uses this word participation, it really means fellowship. It's the word for fellowship in Greek. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 16 to 17 says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. See, this is the meal for those who have fellowship with Christ. He's with us. He's there. We have fellowship with Him. We are one body. We have fellowship with each other. And the goal of raising our children up in the covenant community by baptizing them, by bringing them to the table, by integrating them in our Sunday worship is so that we can raise them up into maturity in Christ so that we can present them mature in Christ. We bestow upon them every blessing of being one of God's children and we trust the Lord to do the work of salvation in their life as we point our children again and again and again to their Savior, and we exhort them daily to believe in Him, just as we do to each other. This is what it means to be the church. This is the rightful place to raise and nurture covenant children. And this is why there are some churches that are better than other churches. I mean, we get uncomfortable talking about it, but it's just a simple reality. There are churches that are more blessed by God. It's just obvious. You, you notice it. We see churches that are growing in spiritual maturity. We see churches growing numerically as souls are saved, as God gives them fruit. And these churches often grow despite many hardships and despite many spiritual attacks. These churches, by and large, they keep their children in the covenant. They see a covenant succession. Their children continue on in the faith. These churches don't see many kids falling away. And these aren't merely the churches that have excellent theology. Excellent theology is great. Or even an excellent sign of, uh, practice of the signs of the covenant, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper and Lord's Day worship. 
All these things are very, very, very important. But these churches are the ones that are faithful to their Lord Jesus, who love one another and love God, who obey the commandments of God, who love to hear the word and not just hear it, but do the word. You can have all the theological accuracy in the world, but if you don't do the word, you will not be blessed by God. Jesus tells a story of two sons and the father tells them to go and work in the field. And the first son says, yes, father, but doesn't go out into the field. The second son is a bit rebellious and says, no, father, I'm not going. But then he goes away. He thinks about it. And then he goes into the field. And Jesus asks, which one actually did the will of the father? And the second son did. And so we ought not to be the first son who say yes to God. And yet we do not obey him. We do not do what he says. Saying yes to God is not enough. We must obey him. In fact, sometimes Jesus may come in judgment upon churches. He may take away a church's lampstand. He talks to churches like this in the first three chapters of Revelation. Here's another way to put it. A church that is outwardly healthy is only that way because it is first inwardly healthy. God keeps giving growth upon growth upon growth, steadily and surely and with great patience. It's not explosive. Or sometimes, often it's not explosive. It's gradual. It's little by little. As God turns shaky churches into a fortress full of spirit-transformed believers. Our brothers and sisters, let us labor together that we can create a church blessed by God in our daily regular obedience to God. For God is good. He's just. And he will bless his people as they seek him. For if we are the community of Jesus Christ... We ought to feel, we ought to taste, we ought to smell like him. People ought to come through the doors and see that there's something different here. Brings me now to my third point. The inheritors of the covenant blessings. We all know that church isn't perfect. Even among those who are born again and filled with the spirit, there can still be conflict and dissensions and quarrels. And this is because the visible covenant church community is a mixed community. Within every church community, there are those who have a new heart and there are those who do not. Jesus often told parables about these kinds of people. He compared the kingdom of God to a sower who sowed the gospel in the lives of many people. And listen to how different people respond to the word of God. Luke 8, 11 to 15. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in the time of testing fall away. But as for those that fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on in their way, they are choked by the cares and riches of, and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Notice that in the lives of three of those people, that seed took root. The first one fell on the path taken away. These are people who just summarily reject the gospel and want nothing to do with it. But then there are three others. Something grew in the lives of three of these people. Yet as this seed is growing, and the first person is burned by the sun, and the second person is choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of this world, and Jesus describes at least one of them as having believed for a time, the one that fell on the rocky soil. But yet there is a fourth soil. 
And what marks the difference between this person and the rest is their ability to hold it fast, he says here, in an honest and good heart. Did you see that? What's different about the last person? Their heart. They have a heart change. They have a different heart to the others. And what else? What well, they bear fruit patiently. They hold it fast throughout trials. They stick close to Jesus, even when it gets tough. See, those are the ones that will be saved. They inherit the kingdom of God. So also do we see in the kingdom of God different groups. Jesus tells parables about the sheep and the goat who are among the flock of God, and yet only the sheep inherit eternal life. We have the wheat and the tares, and yet only the wheat are the ones that are gathered into the barn. The tares are burned with fire. We have the net that catches good fish and bad fish, but only the good fish are kept, the bad are thrown overboard. We have those that abide in the vine of Christ in John 15. They bear fruit, but the fruitless branches, it says, are cut off and thrown into the fire. And Paul talks about those who are led by the Spirit and those who are led by the flesh. Uh, We live in a mixed community. In Romans 8, 9, he says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. You see, the goats, they don't truly belong to Christ, although they run in the herd. The tares among the wheat eventually are pulled up and thrown into the fire. They don't belong to Christ. Whether the bad bad fish or fruitless branches, those are the ones who are brought into the kingdom of God, who either hear the gospel, uh, they respond to it with baptism, but they fall away. They're people who grow up in the church. They reject their Lord. The punishment for these people is far worse at the judgment day than if you were never a covenant member. Notice the covenant language here. Hebrews 10.29, he says, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? See, he profanes the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. He was in the church, a covenant member, and he tramples underfoot the Son of God. Paul in Romans laments, that so many of the Israelites had rejected their Messiah. And here's what he says in Romans 9, 4-7. He, he, he wishes, firstly, that he could give up his own salvation for them. These covenant members who have rejected their Messiah. He says about them that they are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Did you hear all those physical blessings they had? So many blessings, covenant members, all the glory of that old covenant and all the promises and the Christ. But these Israelites will never see the spiritual realities. Why? They they didn't believe in Christ. In fact, they killed him. And Paul goes on in Romans 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. It says here that not all of covenant Israel belong to Israel. And brothers and sisters, it is the same for us. Not all Christians belong to Christ. It is only those, Paul says, who have the Spirit of Christ. 
For the rest of Romans 9, Paul goes on to say that the deciding factor in a person's salvation is not their covenant membership. It's up to God. It's his election. You see, both Jacob and Esau were covenant members, and yet God chose Jacob. You see, the elect community and the covenant community are not the same community. Romans 9 shows that. Only those who God chooses will ultimately inherit the kingdom of God. Those people are only known to God. He knows their number and their number cannot be increased or diminished. It is not for us to know. We are not qualified to search another person's heart. We can never tell when someone is truly regenerate. For many who seem regenerate fall away and many who seem dodgy persevere to the end. But what about me? How can I know that I'm one of these people? Simple. You have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The ones who will inherit the kingdom of God are those who truly believe in Christ, who hold it fast, who bear fruit patiently, are growing day by day in Christ. Those are the ones that have been transformed with new hearts. Those are the ones who have nothing to fear because they know that in the days of testing, even if they are brought before kings, God will give them through the Holy Spirit the words to speak. See, if you believe in Jesus, God has claimed you. If you put your faith in him and you have asked for the Holy Spirit, you are renewed by the word of God and growing in your holiness, then you can have great confidence, not in yourself, but in the God who has loved you and redeemed you, the God who will uphold you, the God who will hold you fast. You can never go wrong by trusting in Jesus through thick and thin, because when you abide in him, when you remain in him, you will bear much fruit. That is how we grow up into our salvation, by abiding in Christ. Our salvation comes from Him. Our heart change comes from Him. And He promises to never cast us away. The ones within the covenant who fall away are not the ones who believe and trust in Christ. They say they do, but they know deep down that they don't. They know deep down that they rather many things over Christ. And they're only in the church for convenience, for maybe spouse for their children but they're not there for christ see the call of the new covenant is to love our savior to come to him truly to receive the promises that he has offered in that new covenant and to be faithful members for our entire lives let's pray our father how glorious and wonderful it is to belong to your covenant, to be nurtured day by day by your church, to be considered members of the, your holy bride, to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, by the preaching of the word, by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, by the fellowship of our brothers and sisters who confess you and love you. And Father, I pray for our children that all of these blessings would fall upon them and it would yield much fruit, that they would be transformed in their heart, that they would come to know and understand the gospel and to be changed from immaturity to maturity as they grow up in Christ. I pray for those, Lord, who are covenant members but are far from you and hearts that have not been changed, that are still uncircumcised inside, that are still unwashed. I pray, Lord, that you would convict them of sin, that they would see their need for a savior, that they would cry out in desperation for your Holy Spirit. For we know you are a good father who delights to give good gifts and you give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. 
I pray, Lord, that we would not be found wanting on the day of judgment, but that we would be clothed with Christ, that we would have the wedding garments, that we would not be among the bad fish or the fruitless branches or among the goats or among the tares, but, Lord, that we would be the seed that fell in fertile soil that yields much fruit, that holds, it, holds the confession fast, that bears patiently, that has a transformed heart. That is our deep, earnest desire, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.